As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We have 15 million documented cases of COVID-19 in the United States. 15 million out of the 67 million total in the world. So I think we have to focus on getting our country vaccinated. Hopefully by March, we'll start to see a vaccine available for the general public. part of a moment of history, first to receive this vaccine. How does that feel? Oh, I, it hasn't sunk in yet. I, I can't really answer that question yet. If I can do it, well, so can you. Just a few hours ago, 90-year-old Margaret Keenan, who lives in the UK, became the first person to get the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine outside of clinical trials. In the US, the FDA will hear its first case for approval on Thursday. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with my co-investigator, Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. Today is Tuesday, December 8th. And we are in this episode taking you through what we know so far about the different COVID-19 vaccines and how Wisconsin plans to distribute them. And there is a lot of discussion. It is happening fast. We're learning new things, not just by the day, but sometimes by the hour. And obviously, the thing that we're watching most closely is when and if the FDA will approve the first vaccine here in the U.S. Uh, Pfizer and Moderna are the two that are scheduled for for upcoming hearings, right? That's right. So Pfizer is this Thursday and then Moderna would go next week. And then on top of that, we have other vaccines that are in their stage three portion of their trials that look promising. So you might have heard a lot about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, I know that we've covered here on this podcast AstraZeneca. That's something that Jenna has been following. So if those names sound familiar, it's because they're close. They're in that phase three. But the two most imminent ones who are going before the FDA are first Pfizer and then Moderna. And obviously they need approval from the FDA before they can start to distribute them beyond clinical trials, right? That's really what we're waiting on right now is that FDA emergency use approval. Yeah. So let's actually go through right now what the typical vaccine testing process looks like. So you start with your preclinical testing. And that's when the scientists, they test their new vaccine on cells and they give it to animals. We're talking mice, maybe even monkeys, to see if that produces the immune response they're looking for. So at this point, uh, the New York Times says there are 86 preclinical vaccines in active development. So if that goes well, you move on to phase one, which is safety trials. So that's when a small group of people 
get the vaccine and they're testing safety, they're testing dosage, and and they want to make sure that, again, it has the immune response that they're looking for. That goes well. You go on to phase two, and that's when you expand the trial. So hundreds of people, um, sometimes even children and the elderly, although in this case children um, have not been included in the COVID-19 vaccines that we've been covering. And, and they want to see how the vaccine acts in different groups of people. And then you get to phase three, which is probably what you've been hearing a lot of. So that's when thousands of people get the vaccine. And then we're looking to see how many people get infected uh, compared to people who got the placebo. And so that is really where the media attention has been. And so in June, the FDA told vaccine makers, hey, we want to see evidence that vaccines can protect at least half of the people who get it. And phase three is when you're really figuring out what those what those effectiveness levels are. And um, for, for the vaccines that are imminent uh, coming up on the FDA, if we're talking Pfizer, for example, right now the FDA confirms that the Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective. So it goes well So far over. beyond that minimum level that they had suggested as what we need to approve something, if the numbers bear out, that's dramatically more effective than they expected. That's correct. And so, and, and the interesting thing, though, is that the percent effectiveness can't be the only thing we look at. So I was reading a New York Times article this morning where scientists were basically breaking this down in, in layperson speak. And they were saying, look, if we roll out the vaccine right now at 95% effective rate with as many COVID-19 cases as we're seeing, it's not going to be as effective at preventing deaths and preventing the illness as it would have been if the vaccine were 50% effective, but we had as few cases as we were having at the beginning of September. So how many active cases are going on in the community really can determine how well this works. They refer to the vaccine as a fire hose, and 95% effective is a really big fire hose. But if the fire is burning out of control, there's only so much that fire hose can do. So uh, we're seeing this uh, very uh, effective vaccine, or, or more than one of them now, but Pfizer the first in line really for approval this week. The, the, so the, the first big push and, and the most challenging maybe part of this whole process has been development of vaccines so quickly because this is faster than anything we've seen in modern history. It usually takes vaccines many, many years to be uh, created and produced um, and proven effective. I think the fastest in history prior to this was the mumps vaccine, which took four years. And here we are looking at something that's happened in the course of several months, nine months effectively, or maybe a year if you talk about some of the work that was being done before things really went crazy here in the US, but but even uh, under a year is remarkable. That was extremely challenging and, and we still don't see that official approval yet, but obviously it appears to be imminent. The next big thing is obviously, okay, now we got to get it to everybody and we've got to get people vaccinated. And there are a lot of complications and challenges that come along with that as well. So when, if I should say, if not when, but assuming when the FDA gives that emergency authorization later this week uh, to the very first vaccine from Pfizer, what happens then? 
Yeah, so we're seeing reports that if the FDA approves Pfizer on Thursday, you could see the vaccine rolling out for distribution on Friday. And that's what's really making the different states scramble to get their their plans together. So the vaccine distribution is up to the individual states and they have guidance from the federal government on who should get the vaccine first. And, you know, each state already knows roughly how many doses of the vaccine they're going to get to begin with. But for a lot of this, they're making plans when there are still a lot of moving parts. And we're seeing that happen in Wisconsin. Well, we're seeing the discussion already take place as to who's going to get those first scarce doses, because what we know is once this approval happens, there won't suddenly be hundreds of millions of doses readily available and and distributed all over the country. Uh, We're going to see them coming in in waves. And we're already hearing that the first vaccines have arrived in Chicago and they're on their way to Wisconsin and and that uh, the uh, we're going to be seeing. The expectation, the state says, is in the first wave, we'll see about 65,000 doses here in Wisconsin, about 50,000 from Pfizer. And once Moderna uh, gets approval, then we'll see another uh, 16,000, I believe it is. So it's roughly 65, 66,000 doses in that first phase. Just to give you an idea of what that represents, first of all, we have 5.8 million people in this state, but but more importantly, the, the most important critical people who need to get this, according to those who are just determining prioritization, is, is healthcare workers on the front lines, obviously, dealing with sick patients, and then long-term care workers and long-term care residents. And those two groups alone already comprise something on the order of 500,000 people in Wisconsin. And that's Roughly with 65,000 doses, 65, Six, doses arriving. And, and, and remember, 65,000 doses really only covers about 30,000 people because these shots have to be given in two-dose regimens. Um, so to complete a vaccination schedule, you've got to get two doses. Now, Are both I would doses imagine... arriving at the same time, or is it that well, the first I, it, dose arrives? It, it's the same... Yeah, I, I don't know that that's the case, and I don't know that's clear. My guess is, my my assumption, and, I, and this is an assumption, so it, it's based on what I the meetings I've been watching, the documents that I've been reading. These doses will be given to individuals, um, you know, right off the bat as dose one. So sixty thousand of them will, but those you've still got to get sixty thousand more to those same people later. So those people are kind of committed to another sixty thousand doses or sixty five thousand doses. So the, the idea, though, being that. When you talk about the number of people who are ultimately going to need to get this, you need to double the number of vaccinations or vaccines that will, will need to uh, come into the state. Because if, if 5 million people ultimately need to be vaccinated, then you need 10 million doses. And I don't know what number of people ultimately will have to receive this for this whole thing to be effective. It's not necessarily every individual living in the state of Wisconsin. But again, double the number of vaccinations needed by the number of people who are going to be getting them. So 65,000 is a, just scratching the surface beginning. And this is just for the people in that top priority group. You start to talk about the people who are in the next phase and the phase after that, and ultimately the average general members of the public. This is going to be a process that does take a number of months. And that's why many people are cautioning that while this may be positive or exciting for some, this is going to be a process and it's not going to be done overnight. So, Brian, just this morning, there was a meeting of the State Disaster Medical Advisory Committee, bright and early, 7 a.m., that I know you sat in on. What was their, what what were they trying to sort through? Because there are so many questions 
that they need to figure out in relatively short order. I'd imagine it was a pretty packed meeting. Well, in just the last week or so, this vaccine subcommittee, it's its a subcommittee of the State Disaster Medical Advisory Committee, which is in the Department of Health Services, the state health department. This vaccine subcommittee is comprised of people from all different uh, backgrounds in the healthcare field, and, and they are really right now focused on that question of prioritization. In the beginning part of the vaccine distribution phase, we're going to have scarcity. And so we've got to determine as a state, who are the top priority recipients of this vaccine? Who do we need to get vaccinated first? And as I said, they've already settled on the general concept that that includes healthcare workers and people in long-term care facilities. But those numbers are so big, they even have to sub-prioritize within that. So for instance, in the long-term care world, there are about 60,000 workers and residents of skilled nursing facilities. Those are the most acute patients, the people who have the most severe illnesses and, and health care issues. So they're going to be top priority in terms of long-term care. But at the same time, they're trying to balance the vaccination of those long-term care, skilled nursing workers and residents with people in the healthcare field. And there's a lot more of them. So where in the healthcare field do you go first? And there's a lot of discussion of, who's on that list and, and, and where that begins, um, you know, does that start in, uh, you know, uh, in intensive care units and emergency departments and things like that? Uh, does it, you know, where does it go down the list? There are uh, a number of people concerned that, for instance, um, laboratory techs who do uh, radiation, uh, radiation technology therapists, uh, that they were left off the list of those included in phase 1A. So the vaccine committee this morning uh, received a lot of comments from people in on behalf of these uh, um, the people who do x-rays and things like that. So um, that, that's just one category. Uh, EMS workers is a real concern. So the Wisconsin Fire Chiefs Association, police chiefs and others are writing to the state and this vaccine committee saying, hey, Many of our people go out and they are the first responders on the scene providing medical attention to people inside homes and in They're getting them where to the hospital. They're, they're, and then they're spending, and, and for many of these ambulance workers, they're spending considerable amounts of time in a confined space with these people on the way to the hospital. So they're saying, hey, we should be top priority. And then you have people who provide health care, not in a hospital or a, a large health care setting, but in people's homes to adults with uh, all sorts of healthcare issues, developmental disabilities, same with children in those situations. And they're saying, hey, what about us? We should be a top priority. So all of that's being discussed. And then you have people saying, well, what about school nurses? What about, um, you know, childcare workers at the YMCA? What about the homeless? What about people in prison? So it's kind of that feeding frenzy right now of everyone saying, hey, our special interest group is a priority, make us, you know, put us first in line. And the reality is everybody can't be first in line. So they're having to make some difficult decisions about who is literally priority 1A, and then who comes in phase 1B, and then who comes after that. In the end, there's going to be enough vaccine for everyone. That's not a, a concern. The question is, how long will it take to get there and who gets it first? Well, and that brings me to my next question. And I don't know if we have an answer to that. Do, do we know when the next shipment of vaccines would hit Wisconsin after the initial 65,000 doses? 
in the documents I've read and the, and the meeting um, meetings that I've been watching, the best uh, estimate I've seen is they expect another, and, and this is off the top of my head, I'm not looking at it right now, but my recollection was after that first wave comes in, they expect another maybe 10 to 15,000 a week, but that could change and evolve very quickly, especially as new vaccines are approved. Um, so in the, but in the early period, in the first several weeks or even first few months, it may be more of a trickle than uh, a downpour. So it, it's going to pick up steam as time goes on. The question is just how quickly that happens. So if you're hoping that you're going to be able to run out to, uh, you know, your local doctor's office or pharmacy and get uh, a COVID-19 vaccine, um, you know, right after Christmas, don't count on it. It's not going to happen unless you're one of these people in that priority 1A category. Uh, but could you by March or April? Maybe more likely if you're just sort of a member of the general public uh, and not considered an essential frontline worker of some type, you might be looking at more like May, even June. And depending on how quickly things roll out or if there are any complications potentially beyond. So that's why we are looking well into 2021 before there is a mass distribution to the general public, at least as I understand the materials I've read and the things I've watched so far. Well, and we should point out that once you once you get both doses of the vaccine, it's not just, hey, throw away your mask, go to a concert. You're good now because the rest of the pop it's going to take a while for the rest of the population to be vaccinated and like we talked about a little earlier if the vaccine is being administered during a high volume of covid cases then it it's not going to be as effective as if it's being administered when there's a, a lower volume of covid cases so we're being uh, yeah told the, the, i think the unrolling of those sorts of uh, restrictions is going to be a very slow process as well it's not going to be a light switch that's for sure right because there there are still going to be public health concerns there are still going to be liability concerns um there are going to be delays in, in who can get vaccinated and in it it's not a matter of it kicks in right away and then you're never going to get COVID-19 again, right? We're still studying the long-term effects of this vaccine. We don't know if this is going to be something like the flu vaccine where you have to get it periodically um, or if this is something where the virus is going to mutate. There's still a lot that we don't know. So I think that while there's great hope for this vaccine, I do want to caution people that it's it's not a matter of once you get it, the the switch flips and you can go back to how things were pre-pandemic. Well, there's a lot of question because of that, because we don't know what the potential is for reinfection. You know, how long does it when you get this vaccination, how long does immunity last? Will it last three months? Will it last a year? Will it last five years? We don't really know that. There are certainly some reports, sporadic reports of people being infected multiple times with this. Um, what we, what I am seeing in the literature that the state is reviewing is, for example, when they look at frontline healthcare workers, because there's a scarcity of vaccine, one of the things they're talking about is, is requesting that healthcare workers who've been exposed to COVID, who they themselves have gotten COVID on the job and are now better, that they wait on getting the vaccine so other people who've yet to be exposed can get it first, because the belief is they've are probably uh, have more of an immunity to uh, the disease than a coworker, for instance, who's never been, has never contracted the virus. But the time limit they're putting on that is just 90 days. They say if you haven't had an infection within the last 90 days, essentially go right ahead as though you've never had it. But if it's been within the last 90 days, you know, wait till you're a little closer to the end of that period 
before you jump to the head of the line, let the other workers get it. Just when I read that 90 day period, now granted that may be an overabundance of caution, but the idea that immunity may only last 90 days uh, certainly raises that question of if that's the case, can we keep up the pace in the finance of re-vaccinating uh, people, you know, in just a matter of months after they've gotten this, or or will this be an annual thing like the flu shot? Um, you know, it, really, as you said earlier, though, the, the key is knocking down the spread, because once the spread is back under control or gets back to a much smaller and more limited amount, it may well be easier to contain, may not require uh, an effort quite like this. But there are just so many questions to be answered in terms of how effective this is going to be in the long term. Right now, we're just trying to knock down the out of control spread across the country. Well, and it it's made even more difficult by the fact that we're never going to know exactly who has already had COVID and not because there are a lot of people who uh, have tested positive, but they've been asymptomatic. And so how many people haven't been tested because they didn't have symptoms, but then actually already had COVID. So there are so many moving parts to this. And it's it's part of the reason that it, it, living through the pandemic, it feels like it's taken forever to get to this point where we have a vaccine. But as you pointed out at the beginning of this episode, Brian, this is a remarkably fast pace. And I know I've heard questions from our viewers about how this can be considered safe if it's moved at such a fast pace. And I think there are there's a, a real hesitancy from certain groups of the population because of that, as eager as people are to get on with their lives. Now, the people who are working on these vaccines and public health leaders have assured us that in terms of the science, it wasn't a matter of corners being cut. It's basically the, the way the process works because the company developing the vaccine is taking on an incredible financial risk. The process tends to move slower because if you're going to move between phases, you're taking on a bigger financial risk and you want to protect those finances. Whereas because of things like Project Warp Speed and the the government interest in getting this out quicker, some of that risk has been removed from the process, which has allowed them to speed it up. Well, it's one of the big things that allowed them to do was to ramp up production of the vaccines before approval so that they could be ready for immediate distribution once this is approved. That's one of the big time savers here. And like you said, you imagine that you are a large pharmaceutical company who isn't sure whether or not your vaccine is going to be approved. Would you really spend the money and make the investment to ramp up production of millions and millions of doses of something that may be useless? Um, unless you have some assurance that your financial investment is going to be protected. And that's really one of the big things that's happened here that's allowed the process to speed up. I'd also point out that even though the mumps vaccine took four years to produce, it was largely something that was created by one individual, uh, a a, a gentleman, and his name escapes me at the moment, but he was considered essentially the father of of vaccines in this country uh, who just did his own levels of experimentation and was able to create a mumps vaccine using a culture from his own daughter. Um, Compare that to what we're dealing with today with these companies all over the world that are competing um, with massive investments, researchers and labs all over the world that are that are studying this. Obviously, the manpower put into researching and producing a COVID-19 vaccine is dramatically greater than what we've seen for past 
uh, you know, vaccine. So that also is responsible for some of that speed is just the, the sheer volume of research that's been put into doing this quickly. Right. And different countries have different approval processes. So there are some vaccines that have been approved for limited use in China and Russia before the phase three results are even in the UK just approved the Pfizer vaccine. And that's because their approval process, they were reviewing the data as the the vaccine development was happening. Here in the US, the FDA doesn't do that. The FDA says, get your stuff together, then submit it to us, then we'll review it instead of reviewing it as the development goes. And so that's why um, the UK has this approved before we do. Um, so there, it, it's interesting how different countries work in, in different ways, but there are some that have been approved for limited use in other countries. One thing I want to point out that I think is an interesting dichotomy here is you've got right now this race for all these groups to be identified as high priorities. Um, but on the other end of it, there are people who are saying, hey, I don't want this vaccine right away because I am concerned about the speed with which this has been done. And and in still others that say, I don't know that I want the vaccine at all. You have people who don't believe in vaccines, the so-called anti-vaxxers. You just also have others who are concerned, again, about safety. So as we get more data, as the vaccines are distributed more widely to healthcare workers and, and long-term care residents and workers and, and then beyond that, we'll start to get that data and we will get more information about the safety of these vaccines. And I do wonder if they prove to be uh, extremely safe. Will that uh, assuage some of those concerns of people who say, I, I don't think I want to get this? Um, or, or will it be something that there are just some people who aren't going to overcome that objection and we'll have a segment of the population that just refuses to get vaccinated? Yeah, and only time will tell when it when it comes to that portion. I think as we look at the effectiveness of the vaccine, I I think uh, the the difficult thing with a lot of these decisions is it's easy for them to be driven by emotion. Whether it's the emotion of I want to get out there first, I want this pandemic to be over, I want to get it right away, my group should be at the front of the line, um, versus you know the emotion of being scared of something new that's being injected in your body. Once this vaccine becomes widely available, though, it's worth noting that in many cases, your employer could have the legal right to say, if you want to keep working here, you've got to get the vaccine. That is something that uh, it's not necessarily the case with, with every employer in every situation, but once it becomes widely available, we could find ourselves in that situation. And in that case, if, if you want to keep working there, you won't have much of a choice. Well, and that'll raise the question about what about schools? You know, what are the rights to uh, to uh, uh, object to a vaccination if you send your, your son or daughter to a public school or to a private school? And a lot of those questions will come. I think they'll come a little later in the process. Right. But this vaccine isn't right for now children, it's... so that's not going to be addressed immediately because children that children weren't part of these trials for what we're talking about right now. 
What about well, it does raise the question, like you said, with employers. What about school staff members? And, and there are some who wa- want teachers to be high up and, and you know toward the front of the the line and all of this. But there may be others who say, I, I, don't, I don't trust the vaccine. I don't want it. I think a lot of that stuff will be secondary because right now it's a moot point. There are so few uh, vaccines available for the first uh, round of doses that it's really going to be more the feeding frenzy of those who want to be at the front of the line. I think when we see that widespread availability, when it is available in every corner pharmacy, uh, that then there will become the question of, do you need to get it? Are you required to get it? What if you don't want to? Um, th- th- those those questions will certainly be something we encounter a-, a little ways down the road. Ultimately, that is the plan, by the way, is that you will be able to get these vaccines at your local Walgreens, CVS or whatever it is. They will be just like they administer the flu shot. They will be a big part of administering the COVID-19 vaccine in the later phases, not here initially as they uh, try to get the vaccine out to frontline healthcare workers and, and long term care residents. Of course, we're going to continue bringing you more information about the uh, distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. This is really the story of the moment right now, and we're going to be covering this heavily in the coming weeks as we bring you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record. We'll be covering more on the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, the fallout from the presidential election, we're still in the midst of that transition. Reckless driving, police community relations, so much more. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, something you want to know more about that we've discussed here on Open Record, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will talk to you again on Thursday. Thursday.